0: Hello and welcome back to Control Alt Delete. This is a replay of an old episode with the brilliant Alain de Botton. This is one of my favorite episodes, so I wanted to put it back out there for anyone who might have missed it or wants to listen to it again. Alain is a writer of multiple books described as a philosophy for everyday life. His first book, Essays in Love, was published when he was just 23 and it went on to sell millions of copies. He is also the co-founder of the School of Life. It's one of my favorite platforms. It's an educational space dedicated to a new vision of education emotional intelligence and self-knowledge i love their books i have gone to some of their classes and i also really like their products i've actually got something on my desk which is a sand timer from the school of life which helps me write in 25 minute bursts and if you go on there there's so many kind of games that you can play with friends and games that you can play with your partner and it's all about connection and it's all about getting in touch with each other's emotions in different ways the School of Life's latest book is called A Simpler Life, A Guide to Greater Serenity, Ease and Clarity. And it came out this year in 2022, which I really recommend as a gift to yourself or a gift to a friend. So I hope you enjoy this replay and listening to Alan de Botton's Dulcet Tones reminding you that you can do life and you are doing it well as you are. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thank you. Such a pleasure to
0: be here. I went to the I'm School thrilled. of Life, the, the HQ, real place, the, the real IRL physical place, <laughs> yeah, this morning and it was amazing and what you've created is so, so special and so welcoming. And the atmosphere, as soon as you walk in the door, feels like the, the book, it's oh, like good. a hug.
1: Oh, good. I'm so pleased. I mean, that was always the idea, to create a home for certain ideas. And you know, we're always in virtual space and on our own with a text. And, and what's nice is that you can actually go and meet other people. Mm-hmm. And I think learning and sort of accepting ideas is as much about the other people that you're with as it is with an author. And I think that if you're trying to change people's minds, you know, if, if somebody is lacking compassion for themselves, it's one thing to have a text in front of them saying, you know, feel compassion for yourself. It's mm-hmm. quite another to be in a room with people. We forget that we're sensory creatures, we're embodied creatures. And so it's good to carry our bodies around sometimes.
0: Totally. And I really found this morning there was that domino effect of when one person says something, you kind of think, oh, right, you've allowed me to now share something on the same level.
1: Yes. I mean, I think, you know, when people hear about the School of Life, they they sometimes immediately imagine that it must be maybe American and that it's focused on self-help to make your life perfect. And I think one of the f- sort of grounding ideas of the School of Life is that uh, it's about imperfection. It's about accepting vulnerability, imperfection, brokenness, and that that's the way forward with so many problems. You know, if, if for example, you're lacking confidence, the standard of, Approach is to say to somebody, if you're lacking confidence, believe in yourself, trust that you're beautiful, dignified, wonderful. And, you know, that goes a certain way. But actually, if you accept that really you're an idiot, everyone's an idiot, the whole world's an idiot, we've got seven billion idiots on the planet, (laughs) but that's okay. That's a better way forward. So
0: we're,
1: I think we're kind of, we're quite English in a certain sort of way, in, in the sense of not imagining that anything perfect can be built in this life maybe it's for the next life if yes. you believe in such a thing but not in this life
0: definitely I mean I watched your talk on YouTube a few years ago I think it was even I think you recorded it in 2013 but the the talk on pessimism that kind oh. of went viral and it really does flip things and it's like you say not depressing at all in fact it's the opposite
1: it doesn't have to be it's all about your dreams what do you do with your dreams the standard view is a dream is only good if it's going to be fulfilled and if your life's going to be you know a continuation of of something that you've imagined and everything becomes perfect. But actually, sometimes we need to give up on our dreams. No one ever tells us this, that actually dreams can be a torture, in relationships especially. We're big on the word compromise. You don't hear many organizations saying they're big on compromise. But compromise has become a dirty word. Why? We have to compromise. If we're going to live, we're going we're gonna to have to compromise on, on our ideals, on our friendships, on our, you know, all sorts of things. And that's okay. So the school of life is, is oddly positioned in the sense that, yes, we are interested in making things better. Better, but we think that one of the ways to make things better is to accept that they're sometimes quite difficult, and that sometimes merely acknowledging that there's a problem that won't budge is about as good as we're going to get. But that's mm. still progress. Yes. So yeah, we're it's kind a of,
0: relief. <laughs> we're, we're,
1: yeah, we're, we're interestingly melancholic. Melancholics yeah. a word I like. It's hard to spell, but once you get over the spelling, it's a beautiful word. And it's different from sadness, different from rage, different from anger or bitterness. So we're kind of a bit of a melancholic organisation
0: in the best sense. Could be quite enjoyable, a bit of melancholy.
1: Absolutely. You know, put on a sad song.
0: Exactly. And yeah, really (laughs) wallow in it and love it. So it's been or just has been the 10th anniversary of the School of Life and I just wanted to ask you how you think things have changed because I mean Instagram came about in 2010 I think Facebook had just launched it's kind of that sweet spot before social media just like took off basically and the internet ruined our lives so I just wondered how has the conversation shifted
1: Well we've realized that most of our audience is going to be a digital audience which we don't mind I mean we started off as you say with physical bases and we've still got 10 around the world and people gag- Gather, and it's really important that they gather. But a lot of the time they hear about us through, well, biggest thing that we do on digitally is our YouTube channel. We've got a, a YouTube channel. I didn't know anything about YouTube back five years ago when we started. And it's the most impactful thing that I've ever done. It's such a democratic medium. It's such a mass medium. You reach so many people you wouldn't otherwise reach. Of course, here I am speaking about a book. Books are wonderful things. And there are experiences you have with a book which you wouldn't have with anything else. It's slower. It's more meditative. You can take your time. You can underline things you know things happen when you've got a book however in terms of just opening people's eyes to kind of that we exist etc nothing beats something like YouTube and and
0: hearing you say things the team this morning actually said that you like audio that you're a fan of doing interviews in audio form yes
1: I love audio love audio because, well, it's a real conversation. Both sides can have their say. The audience can follow a conversation. You know, yeah, it's, it's great. So huge fan of audio, huge fan of animation. And, and I've loved, you know, I'm old now, but I've loved learning stuff and learning how to reach audiences. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of snobbery around, like, how, can you be serious on Instagram? Can anything decent be said on Twitter, etc. You know, every medium has things that, that are good for it, and, and sometimes some, you know, we've we've made statements on Twitter that have been so impactful; they've been gone around the world in a in a day, and that's amazing to see.
0: So people like John Bronson have really seen what's gone on online, and actually, I mean, done books on it and podcasts, but really explored it and taken it seriously because it's such a part of our life.
1: It's part of a lot. I mean, it's dangerous as well. There's no doubt. It, it's frightening that the online world is is scary. We're addicted to our phones. It can be hard to get back to real life, etc. We need some bit of education. We wrote a little book on how to use your phone and we're writing one for kids now about how to use your phone. So yeah, undoubtedly, it's, it's something you're not generally taught at school. And this entered our lives without anyone telling us what it would do to us. It's got some wonderful sides to it and some dark sides to it. And I think, you know, I'm not the first to say this, it's very hard to know what you're up against when you're in digital space. If you see something beautiful and good on someone's Instagram feed, how normal is that? A beautiful and good thing. And how upset should you be that that beautiful and good thing isn't in your life? You know, how representative is it? We're very bad at statistics as human beings. We can't gauge what's normal very easily. And we get quite upset because we're constantly imagining that we are weirder, sadder, more shame-filled, more horrible than we actually are. This probably, you know, what we feel is the darkest secret about us is probably shared with millions, billions of people. But we tend to be kind of isolated and social media slightly fries our minds on that because it, it you know if you've got an enemy on twitter um is the whole world against you no you you might have 20 people on twitter that feels like the whole world's against you it's not it's 20 people and if you met them in a room you'd go oh it's just 20 people but once they're on twitter you know it gets more dangerous yeah it, feels, it looks more dangerous. it
0: feels so like much more heightened. But yeah, this morning actually at one of the classes, Call cool of Life classes, at so nice. I just keep thinking about lots of things that came up and I was only in there for an hour. So mm. God knows what people learn when they take the full day long courses. But um, yeah, we spoke about envy and how it's actually one of the most useful emotions we have actually and blocking it out can be detrimental to moving forward.
1: Yeah, I mean the, the sort of standard view is if you feel envy there's something wrong with you and you should only look on the bright side. I think like many troubling emotions, it's got to positive side that can be teased out. I mean, it's only generally through envy that you realise what's missing from your life. It needs to be refined because often envy overshoots its target. You think you envy the whole of a person's life when often it's a bit of their life. Mm. Or you think that you need to be somebody else when actually you don't. You It's all right, remaining yourself, but you might need to move you know, a few millimetres this direction or that direction. So listening out for envy, analysing your own envy, sitting with it and going, what's it trying to tell me? Inaccurately, And probably in an exaggerated way, it's probably trying to tell me something sensible. Mm. And that's a nuanced position. And but I think it works.
0: Yeah. And and the focus on self-knowledge and getting to know ourselves and really sitting with those feelings and kind of analysing them. It kind of goes against this culture of always looking at our phone, never really thinking, closing out everything. It's so easy to just sit there and scroll for hours and time just passes. And obviously, you're such a big thinker and you are encouraging lots of other people to think more. How do we become a bit more bored again?
1: Well, first of all, we have to realise that the enemy of sitting with your feelings is not laziness or indeed the phone, it's fear. Mm. The the reason why we don't do it is we're not bad people, we're we're just scared because um, sitting with your own feelings you're likely to stumble upon something uncomfortable. It's just the way that our minds work. We, we we shove a lot of things into the back of the cupboard, and then when there's a train journey or a long plane journey or it's the middle of the night, these thoughts bubble up and they surprise us and they frighten us, and the impulse is to, to run away from them. But again, they're generally trying to tell us something. I mean, there's a lot of undigested sadness. A lot of, a lot of sad stuff happens to everyone every day, little small things, sometimes bigger things, but often quite small things, little slights, little moments when you felt disconnected from people, etc. And I think we're we're much more sensitive than we think we are. And it accumulates, and it weighs us down. And we need to kind of regularly try and sift through those emotions, process them, allow sadness to have its say, so that it won't bubble up again as, as bitterness or rage or, or something. It's very hard to do. I mean, you know, very few of us can sleep a good night, you know, mm. through nowadays. There's a lot of reasons for that. But but a lot of it is that we don't have time during the day to process thoughts. And I think insomnia is a sort of revenge <laughs>
0: for all
1: the thoughts that you forgot to have in the day or, or, or carefully plotted not <laughs> yeah. to have in the day. And they want to have their, their day in the sun or their hearing and they're going to wake you up at three if you're not going to listen to them at 10.
0: I will keep you awake and yeah. tell you, yeah. And
1: tell you that, you know, I, I'm sad and worried. So I think, yeah, we are big believers at the School of Life in the importance of self-knowledge. It's a basic mystery that we live inside a mind where we understand only about two percent of it and the rest of it we're you know in the dark with a little torch with a very flickering and feeble light and it can take decades for us to realize the most basic things and of course the other troubling aspect of the way we're built is that we're built from childhood up and childhood is generally a forgotten part of life where incredibly important things happen we feel their legacies in adulthood but we tend not to remember or we're distracted from their kind of original causes and it can can... Can take a lot of courage and a lot of introspection and patience to go back and revisit and try and assemble what might have happened to us and therefore why we are the people Mm -hmm. we are. And without anyone meaning for many childhoods to go wrong, there is a sort of tragic aspect to many childhoods. You know, very few of us get through the first, you know, fifteen years without a knock or or two in the wrong place. Mm Will have a serious impact on us as as adults. And we really need to get on top of it, if only to warn others of this, because we're we're dangerous because of the knocks we we get. It's one of the most generous things you can tell somebody that you're living with, whether as a friend or as a partner, to be able to give them a map to who you are, what's going on inside you. And No one expects anyone to be completely sane, but you've made a major step if you can at least give somebody a map of where you're insane. And at School of Life, we always say that, you know, on a first date, one of the initial questions that you should be asking is, you know, how are you mad? Um, (laughs) uh, Because everybody's mad, a bit mad. And if you can say how you're mad, that's a huge help. And I think the most worrying person to go on a date with would be somebody who would go, well, I'm completely fine. What about you? Um, <laughs> you know, that, that would be an alarming character to, to be yeah. with. Whereas somebody who goes, you know, I've got this problem and that problem, you're on safer ground. Because the number one enemy of relationships generally is defensiveness. If somebody is defensive in relation to a challenging insight, the whole thing falls apart very quickly. Somebody's able to go. Okay, I hear you. I can see that. Mm, wonder, wonder if I really am this or that. You know, that should be the most seductive thing. Doesn't matter what clothes they're wearing or how chic they look. If they're non-defensive about their emotional makeup, go for it. Yeah, <laughs> that's the thing.
0: Yes. Well, because it all should be working out a little bit better at the beginning. It's all going to come out anyway.
1: Yes, exactly. And you know, of course, we do get attracted to people according to pretty unhealthy patterns. This big thing of. What what we do at the School of Life is to alert people that love is generally a repetition mm. of and an attempt to refine emotions that were laid down in childhood. And some of those emotions were less than healthy. They might have been, you know, love may have been bound up for us with feelings of humiliation or feelings of neglect or, or something. And often when we try and find an adult partner, we say we want someone lovely and kind and sweet and nice. But actually, if you look at what people do rather than what they say, they make some extraordinary choices where they'll neglect the so called nice person and they'll declare that person, in inverted commas, boring or in inverted as unsexy. But if you really scratch the surface, what they trying to tell you is, you know, this person's not going to make me suffer in the way I need to suffer in order to feel I'm in love, mm, which is a lot fami- darker.
0: familiarity thing. Yes. Yeah.
1: We're looking for someone familiar far more than we are looking for someone kind. Mm. Now, sometimes the two may sit together brilliantly, but sometimes they may be really quite far apart. And it's yeah, it's dark stuff.
0: Wow. Yeah, because today we were talking about imposter syndrome as well. And actually that even didn't even make the connection, obviously, until someone kind of spelled it out. But the idea that you believe everyone else is better than you and more legitimate than you... And cleverer than you because from childhood, that's kind of the position everyone was for a yes. long time.
1: Yes. I mean, without grown ups trying to deceive children actively, for a small child looking up, literally up at an adult, the adult seems to have a lot of life worked out. And, you know, it's that feeling of like it's the summer holidays, you go into a shop and you see your teacher in the shop and you think, ooh. The teacher is alive in the holidays. (laughs) The teacher is buying a pot noodle or a banana. She has a first name. Yeah, she has a first name. You know, she's wearing shorts or something. You know, it's weird. And I think we constantly, I mean, the problem is that we've got access to our own minds but we know the minds of other people only through what they choose to tell us, which is an inc- generally an incredibly edited version of reality. Because people don't want to frighten us, they want to impress us, they want to seem normal with us. And you know, there's a role for all of those feelings. I mean, you wouldn't want your airline pilot to come on the radio and say, you know, I- I'm scared and vulnerable <laughs> and you know, I'm going to collapse. You know, you want them to, to get yeah. you to your destination. So there's you know, there's, a, there's there's some good reasons, but a lot more often than is perhaps useful, we're strangers. Uh, from each other. And so the result is that we tend to feel like imposters and quite strange people. Mm. And I think that, you know, one of the roles of art, broadly defined, you know, literature, music, etc.—is is to give us an insight into what real life is like, the kind of life that, you know, the neighbour's not going to tell you when you're chatting over the garden fence, or it's not going to be mentioned at the dinner party. The real story of what it's like to be human should be emerging from works of art. Mm-hmm. Um, and And I think that's, you know that's the great feeling of when you're reading a novel or seeing a film, or something, and you think, ah, oh, that's you know that's the true life that mm. actually most of the time is neglected. There's a lovely quote from Emerson where he says that in the works of geniuses we refine our own neglected thoughts. So the idea that kind of a so-called sort of genius is not is not coming up with different ideas. What they're doing is they're just alive to the real ideas that we constantly have in our heads that we neglect because we think, oh, that's not worth it. No one's saying that. And there is that feeling sometimes you you read a, a poet, often it happens, you know, and you think, wow, I've thought that before and never had the courage or just the sort of, I don't know, the kind of wherewithal to to hold on to that idea. But it's deeply my idea. Mm. And it but it's because it belongs to everybody. Yeah. And, and when it was
0: your idea, you thought it wasn't good enough. And yes, then there it exactly. is printed probably exactly. being a bestseller. <laughs> exactly. And you think, oh,
1: you know yeah. so again without anyone meaning to plot against this we've got very low self esteem congenitally low self esteem and congenital suspicion of ourselves and as you say imposter syndrome
0: i wondered what you thought about the happiness industry at the moment cuz it seems like it's everywhere people are employing like happiness architects and happiness consultants and, you know, these companies that are just obsessed with yeah. happiness. Look, I mean, it's
1: there's a nice side in the sense that uh, business and government to some extent has woken up to the idea that well-being, emotional well-being is an important thing. I think we're still at the dawn of, underst- of having a really subtle understanding. So a lot of these efforts are quite clunky. And the word happiness for me is, is a tricky one because I think it's quietly a rather coercive word. It's not it doesn't feel inclusive because I think that the dominant emotion that most people have every day of their lives is anxiety. That's the dominant emotion. And if you tell people, you know, the goal of life is to be happy, it's quite a demanding thing. And and so I think it's it, it feels like a scary word to me. Mm. It feels like a word that leaves a lot
0: of people out. I know so, you've spoken a lot about individualism and that seems like it's reaching a real peak at the moment. Everyone works and I'm actually guilty of of promoting this sort of lifestyle I suppose in some of my work but the kind of solo worker who kind of can work by themselves and love it but actually that would really break down a lot of communities and and happiness if we just worked on our own the whole time. Yes,
1: I mean look we grew up in tribes, we grew up to belong in tribes even before families you know we've replaced our tribal existence with a family Existence and often just a couple existence. And that's incredibly punishing. We expect, you know, part of the reason why relationships are so hard is we expect to find a partner, one partner, and they will be everything for us. They will be our best friend, our sexual partner, our co parent, our chauffeur, our, you know, everything. And of course, who can manage that burden? It's a cruel burden to place on anyone's shoulders. And people who are suited in lots and lots of ways will end up breaking up and never seeing each other again. Simply Probably because in you know five areas they didn't meet. And that's so normal. I mean it's a it's a huge problem. And I don't know, but my my hunch is that Uh, being in groups and hanging out in groups is such a salutary and consoling activity. And the more of that you can get into your life, the better. Mm -hmm. And whether that's a virtual group or whether that's around an interest or could be around work or or whatever, go for it. Because Mm -hmm. isolation and lack of connection ultimately is kind of death. When we die, we will be cut off from others, obviously. But insofar as we are alive, the opposite of death is connection, I
0: Mm -hmm. think. So important. So many studies at the moment just saying millennials are more lonely than old age pensioners. Like it's it's just everyone feels like that, and there's this aspiration of like the squad. And like if you don't have a squad of friends, then you're nobody. But then it's hard to open up then and be like, hi, I don't, I
1: don't have a squad. Totally. I mean, one of the things that's you know, We don't put this on the tin completely, but I can tell you at the School of Life, we run these classes and at one level you're learning about all sorts of things. It could be culture, about your emotions, etc. But really what you're doing in a big city like London is being in a room with a group of 20, 25 strangers, opening your heart up about all mm-hmm. sorts of things. And it is the conduit, it has been the conduit to so many friendships. And, you know, London, people will say, "Oh, there's so much to do in London, you could go anywhere, etc. But think of how few of the things that you can so-called do in London are genuinely social exercises as opposed to merely places where there are other people who you can never talk to without mm. seeming like a weirdo uh, and most yeah. things if you go to a club if you go to you know a, a show etc of course there are lots of people around you. you go to a restaurant a bar lots of people around you but oh my god you've got to be brave or you know slightly cheeky or you know feeling in a good mood to start approaching somebody and and to chat you know we don't do this in this country it's
0: um, a shame isn't it it is a sh- I mean you know
1: there are reasons and, and you know if you're if you've ever been on a packed tube, you'll know that there are probably quite good reasons not to start (laughs) chatting to everybody. You know, there there are dangers and and risks and and etc. But we pay a heavy price, a really heavy emotional price. And I think we'd be amazed by how many problems disappear when you are part of a a, a group that's functioning. Obviously, I'm not the first person to say this, but, you know, material goods are so often more attractive when we feel lonely. You know, they they offer us in, in a kind of material form a kind of consolation and cozy and well-being that we really probably crave at an emotional level. Mm. But you generally can't buy connection. But I think there are things you can do. And and that's partly why we built the School of Life.
0: So interesting, because I read something actually on the New York Times, uh, maybe last week, but the title was, Has Self-Help Turned Into Self-Care? And I think they were saying that The self-help genre, as I know you've spoken about a lot, which is kind of a bit ridiculous in in some ways. The whole like you can do it overnight thing now has this like wellness angle wrapped up in it and how we're we're much kinder now to each other. And we say, you know, go and look after yourself rather go and do it. But then the self-care thing can be quite solitary as well, because you're basically saying don't go to the pub with your friends, stay in and look after yourself, but there must be a line to that.
1: And of course, it's very, very hard to look after yourself. I mean, it is something, little babies, when they're upset, they get soothed by a parent. And if the process goes well, you learn how to soothe yourself, mirroring what happened to you. But many of us who wind up in the more troubled areas of the psyche uh, weren't soothed properly. And not all parents know how to soothe because they don't know how to soothe themselves. So there's a general soothing problem. And what, What is soothing, really? it's putting a non-catastrophic interpretation on a, on a problem. Think of the terror of a baby who wakes up in the middle of the night. It's dark. They're hungry. They've got a pain in their stomach. They've got no language. They can't speak. They can't understand themselves. They've got only the barest methods of communication with themselves and the outside world. And they're in great pain. That is a terror. And they're hugely dependent on an adult coming along and reading them properly. And if that goes well, and obviously there are failures, even in the best childhoods, but if that goes well, that really sets you up for life. It means that you can do it for yourself and you can do it for your friends. If it doesn't, you just haven't had it modeled for you. You don't know how to calm down. You don't know how to bring support yourself. And I think some of what we're trying to do—this perhaps sounds, sounds grander than it, it should, but it isn't—is we try and soothe people, and the voice that we try and use at the School of Life. And funny thing about it is that we're lots of people, and we write lots of copy for different things. We try and sound like the same person. We basically try and sound like the psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott. I don't know if you read, but he was a fantastic child psychoanalyst. He was the pioneer of um, child pediatrics in Britain in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and he he basically helped to turn the stiff English upper lip. In to something warmer and he was a big in attachment theory and together with John Bowlby and anyway, so he's somebody who's a real hero For us, he wrote wonderful books that sound like they're giving you a um, a pat on the back Mm. and um, and a warm hug. And to some extent, we're trying to sound a bit like that, not not in a calculated way, but because well, because we need it. That's so so interesting. Trying to reassure ourselves. Yeah. Mm.
0: God, no wonder people find parenting daunting. I don't have kids, but I just it just seems like this crazy responsibility. Like not even just the physical side of things, but all of that.
1: I mean, it is. I think we've woken up now. The fact that it's even more complicated than we ever thought—that it's not just physical care, it's the emotional care. My personal view, for what it's worth, is that I would rather there were fewer parents in the world doing it because they really wanted to and they really felt up to the task, mm-hmm. and they had—you know—I think a lot of people end up having children because they just think that's the way it is something you do something you do yeah I think it's going to be a discovery maybe for the next generation that you know that actually some people have children some people won't and that's okay that's a choice rather than there's something really wrong with your life if you haven't had children we see a lot of people at the school of life who don't know why they've had them get quite distressed that they've had them think they're not doing a good job etc etc there's a lot of pain around child Mm. rearing etc
0: so the self-knowledge can only, only ever be a good thing. You get to know yourself and realize realise what you want. But actually we haven't even touched on on how the school of life really came about and actually why it's called the school of life. It's I don't think I'm the only person that thinks the education system is terrible. Yeah. Didn't learn anything at school. Had yeah. to learn it all myself afterwards.
1: Me too. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a so-called good education and oh my God, it was a bad education and uh, it didn't teach me anything that I needed at all. That's maybe a bit unfair. Teach taught me a few things, but I think we all have a hunch that, that there's things we missed out on. You know, there's that expression, the school of life and what it teaches you. The problem is that when it comes to things like science, we know that Every generation doesn't have to find it out for themselves that there's transmission between generations. When it comes to the hard lessons of relationships or the hard lessons of the workplace or of ambition or etc., we tend to leave knowledge to stagnate in each generation. And mm. you know, maybe you've not been lucky to have a, a great grandparent who'll chat to you, or uh, you know, a slightly older figure. You know, generations don't tend to speak to each other. It's very rare for a 25-year-old to have a really good 55-year-old friend who actually is going to tell them the stuff that they've worked out, and many people are not great friends with their parents or don't have you know these figures. So, so knowledge gets stuck and not transmitted, the sort of emotional knowledge. So we tried to make the School of Life a place that would save you time mm. and, and be a storehouse for experience, emotional experience, broadly speaking, yeah. not technical experience, and would just try and save you time in lots of areas. And it came about, I'd always had for years, I had this idea. I was, I was a solo writer for years and wrote lots and lots of books. And then when I was a sort of drunk at a party, And people would be talking about like what they wanted to do. I'd always say, Oh, I want to start the school of life. Wouldn't it be fun to start the (laughs) school of life? And and I always had this idea of like a place where you'd go and you'd hang out and you'd talk about things and you'd trade ideas, et cetera. And then I remember one night, years ago now, a a friend of mine said to me, The thing is you always put this ironically, don't you? But you mean it seriously. Why don't you just stop being ironic and just (laughs) do it? And this was cut me straight to the heart. I thought, oh my God, he's right. And I thought, yeah, maybe now's the time to stop being ironic about something. And and I think often Our ambitions are a bit like that. We're so afraid of them. There's this thing that we really want to know, People say, oh, I want to go in and write the great novel, but you almost just don't dare to say it or I want to go and start start a business. And you don't say it and you say it ironically and sarcastically and then you think, why wouldn't I be allowed? To do that. There's no person in the sky saying yes or no. So, a lot of the problem in starting it was simply motivation and confidence. Practically speaking, we began very small. We made every single mistake in the book. We hired a lot of passionate people, a lot of passionate friends and acquaintances came and joined us. Uh, it took us a long while to stop losing money. And because we're a business, and we're a business for very basic reason that we want to carry on. So we've got to kind of meet our costs every year and it just took a long long time to get ourselves organized. And I was a sort of artist type who didn't necessarily have much time or respect for businessy types and that's really changed. Mm-hmm. I now I love figures and spreadsheets and accountants who know what they're doing. This is a beautiful stiff of stuff. I mean, so long as you so long as the output that you're putting out is is sensible and and yeah. isn't sort of harming anyone, this the discipline of business is, you know, is a great thing.
0: I wanted to ask you about that I'm really glad you brought it up only because hopefully I'll meet you again one day, but this is just such a great opportunity for someone that knows what they're doing. But with the being an artist and making things you really care about versus this, you know, being commercial, because we all have to it's a hard one to balance sometimes, isn't mm. it? I mean, for me personally, I have partnered with lots of brands in the past and, you know, I've got a sponsor for this podcast and um, things like that. But I've also just written a novel, which I feel is very pure and there's no one sponsoring it. Like it is genuinely something that um, is untampered with. I mean, how have you made decisions in your kind of yeah. work to, to not, I don't know if the phrase, how I feel about the phrase selling out. Yeah.
1: But... I think, I mean, it's a really good question. Look, I think that, What really matters to me is Doing something that feels meaningful and purposeful and making sure that it is sustainable, that I can keep going with it. And so, the School of Life, we could be doing lots of things that would make us more money but wouldn't feel right. And at the same time, there could be a few things that we would cut to make us more money or to make us more efficient, but that we don't because we really genuinely value them. And we just try and make sure that at the end of the, the year, everything tallies up. So, we've got a psychotherapy division, for example, and I love psychotherapy. Psychotherapy has changed my life. And we've got 25 five psychotherapists working in a building and they make us about one percent a year of, of profit now most people looking at that would go well, what why on earth are you offering psychotherapy it's a huge investment etc and I think it's because it's life-changing and I'm really committed to us doing it and you know then we'll offer a lot of our services to businesses and when we charge businesses things we tend to charge you know premium rate and everything tends to balance itself up but you know we think a lot about giving back and how much should be free and how much should cost and what it should cost etc we we have this blog called the book of life which we put out and a lot of our content's on there for free everything that's there is for free and then we do youtube which is free but then you know it goes all the way to some premium products like we do a conference we're doing a conference in new york in a few weeks and that will set you back in an enormous sum and that's three days but it'll be three wonderful days Mm. it's not for everybody and sometimes You know, students write to us and they say, we can't afford it. And we go, well, sometimes we give them a discount and sometimes we say, well, there's lots of other things for free and maybe come back and see us Mm. in a few years. I think it's, it's about balancing it up.
0: Absolutely, because there's such a value on, on this stuff. And, you know, you can you can go to a library, obviously, and get books, but it can't all be free all the time.
1: No, and I think there is, I mean, the audiences are spoiled sometimes in expecting everything to be free, and they'll get quite cross. I mean, we've had people writing saying, you know, why don't you just give us your books? And we're like, because we can't, we can't give us, your, you know, we, we make them, and, and it's got to pay somebody's salary. It's odd that people don't expect, you know, a car to be free. But oddly, if you're, if you're delivering something meaningful, the more meaningful, Meaningful it is, the more people expect it to be free, which is touching and nice. But I think it was interesting when Freud started psychoanalysis, he insisted that clients pay him cash at the end of every session. And the reason for this is that he believed that we often associate m- money with dark bad, nasty things. We, we don't feel that it can actually be the conduit to something valuable. And he thought it was very important for people to actually make a connection between something that delivers them emotional value and that might still be material, that, that you can marry up the two.
0: Because it's a, it's a very empowering thing for someone to make money. And I feel like the whole like money doesn't matter thing is a bit... I think it's people that have money say that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And also, I think that if you're asking people to pay something, they will let you know if it's not value for money quite quickly in a in a way that really helps efficiency, if you give everything for free, you know, you never know whether you're doing a good job or not. Mm. If you charge someone something, as I say, mm. it's a very good indicator of value.
0: I'll tell you the book I recently got, which it was very good value, mm. I will say, was the Small Pledges mm. book. I think that is so crucial right now for us to remember the, the small things because, you know, the whole ambition-driven culture, sometimes we can overlook those moments that were actually worth celebrating.
1: Yeah, I mean, we we tend to imagine, don't we, that, that happiness is over the horizon, that it's something that will happen in a few years when we get that mega project on the way, you know, when we've started the relationship, when we've got, you know, the big business under control or whatever it is. And the truth is that, of course, happiness tends to be momentary and it tends to be made out of, of often quite small things. And I think we need constant reminders, not not just stern reminders, but eloquent reminders, reminders that will actually sort of touch our hearts, that, that there are things right here and now that matter and that are important. We just, we just made a film on YouTube on the concept of taking things a day at a time. Mm. Anyone who's been ill, that's seriously ill, will kind of know that concept in, intuitively. When, when you when you're facing an illness, suddenly the future disappears. You know, you, you can no longer think of, sort of twenty years, horizon, or whatever. You're just trying to make it through to the end of the day and and everything might be a bit of a struggle. And and nevertheless, small things really start to matter. You know, you, you had a good half hour, or you had a nice chat with a friend, or you had some soup and it tasted nice. And my God, that's key. That's absolutely key. And I think sometimes we're the victim of our own mm. over ambition. It's like at some level just do take it a day at a time you know if you if you've got a, a small child you often think like that too we're just getting through the day and we've had a nice morning at the park and that's okay and who knows maybe the afternoon will be tricky but so far it's going mm-hmm. okay we, we do need to rein in some of our ambitions if only to actually savour the life that's going on under our noses
0: yes definitely well my last question is the new book is coming out which is on self-knowledge School of Life book.
1: Yes. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a compendium, really, of our all our sort of key ideas, really. Yeah. It's a sort of an it's anthology. Kind of, yeah. It's an anthology of, of, of what we've um, been up to mar- in the last 10 years.
0: Marking that. That is out on the 5th of September. Yeah. And I just wondered, I know you've written so many things over the years. You've done so much. Do you ever feel like you're getting towards this moment of, like, I'm going to feel... Done or content, or does do you still feel like you're not even uh, nearly done? I,
1: I think not, not even nearly. Yeah, I done. thought you'd say that. Yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely. And I, and you know, it's it's painful, but I think that most of us die with having only just begun to scratch, um, you know, the surface mm-hmm. of of what life is is really like, and and that's part of what makes death tragic for everybody. Even if you die at you know 150, and and every day so precious
0: yeah well that's the thing with this like idea that we reach a level and we're suddenly like our perfect self it's it's nice to know that doesn't exist
1: no and i think you know eastern philosophy has been very good at that much better than western philosophy in suggesting that life is a process and metaphors like rivers are very useful in this and materials like water uh, are better than than an imaginary idea of a self as made out of stone or or wood or something completely Mm. solid we we are a process most of us is liquid we're we're fragments and intermittent creatures and we just need to sort of ride the waves rather than imagine that we're going to get to a destination there is no destination There are just lots of little um, way markers Mm. that um, should be as enjoyable as possible
0: well i'll leave on that note thank you so so much for joining me and uh if you want to hear more of alan's voice and also school of life then go and check out youtube
1: thank you so much
0: thank you